Glad you're here this morning and excited to unpack that text for you. Before we get into that passage, though, we are starting a new series today on the attributes of God, and we have some resources in our resource room that are, or area that I'd love to have you grab a hold of. We have a number of books, uh, two in particular, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. We still have some of these left. This other book called God Is, which is on the attributes of God in a devotional. We're all sold out of these. We'll have some more uh, next week. The vision for this is that through the course of the summer, while you're sitting on a beach or up at a cabin, that you'd throw away your cheesy novels. Um, Don't read a novel, read a good one, but throw away cheesy novels and grab some good books like these. Imagine you sitting on a porch, seeing the mountains, reading about God's greatness and having your heart just go, yes. And so that's uh, what we want to put into your hands uh, this summer so those are available and uh, would commend them uh, to you. Secondly, when you came in, we have a new bulletin. Uh, I trust that you'll use this. We try to simplify things. If you're ever here and you're like, I don't know what's important to know about, well, here's the top four things you need to know about today at College Park. We have a congregational meeting. We have a Discover event, new summer series, and our Summerfest uh, DIY outreach program. So that's there. If you flip it on the back, we have some things that are important for you to know, prayer needs, and also um, a service order. So if you're the kind of person who likes to know how can I prepare for the Lord's Day, you could grab this when you come in and just kind of see what's uh, happening. Also for the number of children that are in our service, you can see kind of the flow of the service and also so you can see the intentionality of what we're trying to do every day, uh, every Sunday together. So use that if you would for um, your help and for our collective growth together. Today we're beginning a series on the subject of the attributes of God. J.I. Packer, in his excellent book, Knowing God, one of the books that we'll have available next week, we sold out of them uh, this week, says this, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is eternal life that Jesus gives? It's the knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? It is the knowledge of God. My guess is that for most of us, that's not a new thought. You probably knew coming in here today that knowing and understanding who God is is fairly important. But can I suggest to you that what you probably don't realize is how much what you think about God And what you know or don't know about him informed the way you lived last week. For instance, last week, did you see anything on the news that caused you to groan and just go, oh, our world is so broken? Well, how do you know that the world is broken and on what basis do you determine its level of brokenness? It's based upon what you think about God. Was there any situation this week where somebody was unkind to you and you didn't respond in an unkind manner? For instance, maybe you're standing or sitting at a stoplight. I, I, I hate it when this happens. And the light turns green and somebody behind you honks immediately. Like you just, the light just turned green, right? And so rather than driving really slow through the intersection, right? you've done it, haven't you? You've done it, you wicked sinful people, right? You've done it. I have too. My wife's like, what are you doing? I'm punishing them. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to end this honking thing today, right? Instead of doing that, you just drive with no response, kindly just make your way through life. 
Do you read your Bible this week or spend some time in prayer? Why'd you do that? It's because of what you know to be true about God. Did you find yourself in need of someone's forgiveness this week? Did you see anything in creation that just caused your heart to sort of leap within you about the beauty of what you had seen? All of these things have at their root thoughts and implications of what God is like. Underneath the view of the news is the holiness and the righteousness of God. That's in the background. The mercy of God and how we have been treated by that mercy then affects how we treat others. The the knowability and the personal nature of God as expressed through his word cause us to commune with him and our, our need for his help and our belief that he can help us is why we pray. The creative power of God is seen in creation, declares what he is like according to Romans chapter one. You see, all week long, your life was informed by what God is like. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because it informs how you live, how you worship, and even where you spend eternity after you die. So pleased to have a host of children with us in our service. Kids, let me ask you a question. Your parents tell you what to do what's right, and they help you learn to know what's not right. Your parents get that from an understanding of what they think God is like. You see, all of our existence, the entire universe, and any hope of heaven is all based on what God is like. So over the next nine weeks, we're going to explore this idea of the attributes of God, and the aim is not just to increase our knowledge, although we're going to learn some things about God, some of which will be review. For some, there will be new things I trust that you'll learn, but if this series is successful, that your heart will be filled with a new desire to be able to worship God, that you'll bask in the glory of who he is, that you'll be led to follow him in new obedience, and that you'll marvel at the power of who he is. Today we're going to start with the Trinity. We're beginning here because the Trinity is probably the most important attribute as it relates to what God is like. And by the Trinity, I mean that God is three in one, that he's one in essence, and yet three person. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They operate together in complete harmony and uniqueness and oneness and perfection. And so that when we talk about God, we're not just talking about God the Father, we're not just talking about Jesus or the Holy Spirit, we mean all three of them. That they are equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully God. They are distinct and yet they are one. This idea of the Trinity is foundational to Christianity. It's not only the basis and the starting point of what we understand God to be like, but without an understanding of the Trinity, Christianity, frankly, falls apart. If you've been here for some time, maybe during the book of Romans, I walked you through 
what one might call theological triage, which is that there are some things that are essentials, things that must be believed. Another circle outside of that are convictions, and then there are preferences. And the key is to know which issue in the Bible is in which particular category. So liberalism is taking something that's an essential of the faith and making it a preference. Legalism is taking a preference and making it an essential. So it's not only important that you know what you know, but you know what category various doctrinal truths fit into. In the case of the Trinity, it is in the essential category. To be blunt, you cannot be a Christian and deny the triune nature of God. The, the reason is because the entire plan of salvation, the whole framework of forgiveness of sin, is built on this attribute of God. If you're a follower of Jesus today, it means that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were involved in you coming to faith in Christ. You're here today because the Father in his love elected you and set his love on you. You're here today because the, the Son Jesus died on the cross for your sins and because the Spirit of God blew into your mind and heart no matter what age it was that you came to Christ and your eyes opened, you saw and you believed in Jesus. And the miracle of your conversion is not just that you were forgiven of your sins, but it was that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit cooperated in bringing you to faith. Bruce Ware says the Christian God to be Savior must be Father, Son, and Spirit. Our salvation comes as the Father judges our sin in his Son, who became incarnate and lived his life in the power of the Spirit as the perfect and sinless God-man and accomplished his perfect obedience to the Father through the power of the Spirit. He writes, disregard the Trinity and you undermine salvation. It's true. The Trinity is that important. It's where our study starts because it is so foundational. Now today we're gonna to be in John 8. John 8 is not the seminal text on the triune nature of God. What it is though is the seminal text on Jesus' claim to be God. He makes this I am statement in John chapter eight that is unbelievable and it also gets a little tense. In John's Gospel, Jesus is making a number of I am statements. In chapter six and verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter eight and verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And what Jesus is doing is defining who he is, because after all, he will be the sufficient atonement for sin. In John chapter eight, this conflict regarding who Jesus says he is and who the Jews think that he should claim to be, it escalates and it continues. It, it sort of starts when Jesus calls God his father in chapter eight and verse 38. And you need to know that the Jews didn't call God father like this. So for Jesus to say that God is his father implies an intimate relationship that would have been foreign to the Jews, but even more so, Jesus suggests that his father is not the father of the Jews. And that's where things get a little, let's say, dicey. They point to Abraham as their father in chapter eight and verse 39. And to push back on Jesus, they dig into his past from their perspective. And they say to him in chapter 841, well, at least we weren't born in immorality. 
You can hear the hiss. At least we know who our Father is. Jesus responds in chapter 8 and verse 44 and says, your father is the devil. <laughs> so if you're a disciple at this moment, you're going, whoo, this is awkward, intense. And Jesus says to them in chapter 8 and verse 47, the reason you don't hear my words is because you are not of God. Things get worse in chapter eight, verse 48. The Jews answered, are we not right, saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They used a racial slur. So if anyone ever has used a racial slur your direction, just know Jesus understands what that's like. He says you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Jesus says, verse 49, I do not have a demon but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, verse 50. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Notice he says, I don't seek my glory. God, the Father, the one who is the judge, he's the one seeking my glory. These are shocking words. Truly, I say to you, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I mean, this guy is either God or he's crazy. Verse 52, the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say if anyone's keep my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So this conflict between Jesus and the Jews continues to escalate. Jesus says, verse 54, I, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father, notice this, this is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. He's in effect saying, the one who you say is your God is my father and he glorifies me. Yeah, and your father is the devil. Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. I mean, at this point, the disciples, no doubt, are probably saying, Jesus, okay. And yet he continues because we're coming to a really important point. He says, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. What does that mean? It means that as Abraham considers the unfolding plan of God, the hope of him being the light to the nations, the Messiah was in view and Jesus is in effect saying, I am the one who Abraham looked forward to so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to, him, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, here it comes, before Abraham was, I am. And that 
is why they picked up stones in verse 59 to throw at him. Why? Because Jesus is grabbing the sacred name of God given to Moses in Exodus chapter three when Moses is told, go to Pharaoh and get my people out. And Moses is like, you don't understand, this is Pharaoh, he's really powerful and I really can't speak. Who shall I say has sent me? God says, tell them I am has sent you. The one who has never been created, the one who holds the universe in his hands, the one who always was and always is and always will be, the one who raises Pharaoh up in order to show my glory in this puny little king. Tell Pharaoh and the people of Israel that I am has sent you. And Jesus grabs that name and says, I was there. In effect, by using that name, he says, I was there when the universe was created. I was there when Moses is instructed to go deliver God's people. I was there in the vision of Abraham. I am It's no wonder they picked up stones. This name communicates God's otherness, his self-existence. So Jesus is not just asserting that he was not only older than Abraham, he is asserting that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in this way, Jesus claims to be God, and it is this claim that ultimately led to his crucifixion. Now, before we take a step back and look at the broader context of the Trinity in the scriptures, can I just remind you that if you're a follower of Jesus, the fact that the Son of God, who claims to be the I Am, takes on human flesh in order to redeem sinful humanity ought to make us incredibly worshipful. The second person of the triune Godhead took on the limitations of sinful humanity. He embraced being tired. He experienced hunger. He wept at the death of a friend. He fought off temptation. He dealt with proud and arrogant people. Here is the God-man in perfect obedience, all-powerful in his essence, and the Jews have the audacity to say, who do you think you are? And it's a miracle that Jesus is like, that's who I think I am. Let's start over. Anybody else want to talk? But no. What does he do? He's communicating the power of who he is in the midst of a world that is outright rejecting him. If you're a follower of Jesus, this, this image of Jesus should serve as a powerful motivator for you just to tell Jesus, even now this morning, I love you. To be able to even circle back to the song that we've just sung, that you have no rival, you have no equal. The power of death and hell couldn't hold him. We should also marvel at the fact that this God-man was killed at the hands of sinful human beings. We should tremble at the consequence of sin in us and in the world. Your sin, my sin, cost the Son of God the earthly and human existence that he bore. Our sin was so bad that it required the death of a member of the triune Godhead. That's where John 8 helps us. It helps us to see Jesus as the Son of God. And we started in John 8, but the Bible has other statements regarding the Trinity. 
In the Old Testament, we see the hints at three persons. We see in Genesis 1 the statement that the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. We hear God say and speak, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. At the same time, we hear a particular emphasis in the Old Testament on the oneness of God, the great prayer called the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six sounds like this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why does it say that? It's because in the midst of a, of a world where there was all sorts of gods, a polytheistic environment, the clarion message of the Bible and the message going through the Jewish people is there is one God, only one. And to worship anything else or anyone else is to violate the first and greatest commandment, which is why Exodus 20 speaks of having no other gods before him. Then in the New Testament, the idea of the, the, the triune nature of God expands in, in fuller picture. Jesus affirms the oneness of God, like in Mark chapter 12, where he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He calls in John 17, the Father, the one true God. And yet there are multiple references to the three persons of the triune Godhead. At the baptism of Jesus, for example, in Matthew chapter three, we find that Jesus, in that baptismal moment, has the Spirit of God that descends on him like a dove, and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We have this launching of the ministry of Christ under the banner of the triune Godhead. The first chapter of the book of Ephesians includes a greeting that sounds like this, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then later on in the exact same chapter, just a few verses later, verse 13, it references being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 has this benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we see traces of this throughout the New Testament. What's more, we see it in the life and ministry of Jesus, that the, the ministry of Christ is marked by the interplay of the triune Godhead. It is the Father, according to Hebrews 10 and verse 8, who is the architect behind the incarnation of the Son of God. In Luke chapter 1, Jesus is conceived, and by whom is he conceived? By the Holy Spirit, according to verse 35. As Jesus is pushed into the wilderness for temptation, Matthew chapter 4 tells us that it's the Spirit that thrusts him into that temptation, and it is in that temptation that Jesus must depend upon the words of his Father. Hebrews 9, 14 says that in Jesus' death, he offers himself up by the Spirit of God. And what's more, the book of Ephesians tells us that our salvation is grounded in the Father's love, made possible by the incarnation of Jesus, and applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in the redemptive ark to bring people to faith in Christ. So throughout the Old Testament, we see this oneness and this triune nature of God as central to God's work in the world. No matter what point in history it is, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved in unique and yet different ways. And that is what highlights the beauty of what the Trinity is. So first we've looked at the I am statements of Jesus, and then secondly, 
the way in which the Trinity shows up in Scripture, now just consider the beauty of what the Trinity is. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in relationship with one another. They operate in a oneness that is marked by mutual affection, by love and togetherness. It is their relationship together that makes the triune nature of God so incredibly special. It is no wonder then in the book of Genesis when God says, it is not good that man should be alone. One of the deepest pains in life, is it not to be alone? Even what church is to be, is to be a place where we image out the communal nature of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That there is this community of Christ, that together as we gather, even on the Lord's Day, that there's something unique and special that happens as we gather together and receive the word, as we fellowship with one another. And so that means if you've come and no one knows you, that's not what church is meant to be. That can happen for a week or two or three, but you go beyond a month, dear friend, that's not good for your soul. It's, and you know that it's not good. See, the reality is that God has made us to be communal people. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. If you've been around here, you've heard me give this illustration before, but I think it makes the point really clearly. So, kids in particular, you help me out, help your parents out, let me ask you this. If somebody lives all by themselves, alone, doesn't talk to anybody, they're completely outside of culture, live isolated. Give me a name for that kind of person. What would you call that kind of person? A little louder. Hermit, recluse, okay? Hopefully no one said my dad, right? No. <laughs> Question two. What do you call somebody who lives in community, has relationships, has friends, hangs out with other people, lives with, uh, with other people? What do you call that person? Normal. <laughs> the reason that we don't have a word for it is because that's the way that human beings are meant to function. If you want to punish somebody when they're in prison, what do you put them in? Solitary confinement. You see, there's something communal, something special, Something that even fits with the character of God that relates to this communal nature. Secondly, within the Trinity, we see this beautiful diversity within God. Each member of the Trinity possesses unique roles that are distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. They each have a unique participation in accomplishing the work of God. And so therefore, the triune Godhead is marked by this beautiful harmony. God's goal is not uniformity, nor are all three persons identical in their tasks and activities. Rather, the diversity of the Godhead speaks to the richness of God while never allowing the richness of differentiation to therefore lead to discord. In other words, God has designed both the Godhead and the church and relationships to be filled with people who are different than one another and celebrate their differences and have a harmony that exists between them. And when that takes place, it is absolutely beautiful. You know, the older I get, the more I realize I'm just simply not going to be able to change a whole lot. 
I got to figure out who God made me to be and be the best me that I could possibly be. And therefore, the way to deal with my weaknesses, whether it's in spiritual growth or in um, overall um, church leadership or parenting, I got to have other people enter into the mix and celebrate the diversity of gifts and realize that this brother or sister helps make me a better Christian, a better father, a better pastor, helps us be a better church. For instance, if I came to you this morning and said, I've, I was away last weekend in Kokomo, Indiana, and I wrote a song, um, and I'd like to sing it to you. Yeah, why, why, why are you laughing? Because that would be a scary thing, let alone that it's Kokomo, right? But it's also the fact that it, so for me to write a song, so Jake comes up and writes a song, it just so beautifully captures the essence of this series. At Alfega Martin, <clears throat> Martin's funeral, listen to Eric sing, Give Me Jesus. I told him afterwards, I was like, bro, you could, I could listen to you sing, Give Me Jesus all day long. So helpful for my soul. And I need other brothers and sisters whose unique gifts are not my own. They help make me better. I need other dads to come along and help me parent my children, other husbands to help me understand how to love my wife. One of the beautiful things about being part of the body of Christ is seeing the way in which the diverse gifts within the body make us all better. So if you want to know why you ought to be a member of this church, it's for that reason. You can't walk alone. God's designed the church and even the Godhead to reflect this beautiful diversity. Third, we also discover a compelling authority submission piece that characterizes the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Father possesses the place of supreme authority. The Son, the eternal Son, submits to the Father just as the eternal Father of the eternal Son exercises authority over the Son. So the Spirit then submits to the will of the Father and the Son. And this hierarchical structure of authority exists in the eternal Godhead, even though it is also eternally true that each person is fully equal to one another and in their commonly possessed essence they are essentially of the same value. I'll unpack this more at the end, but you need to know that the Trinity is a picture of a plan for divine function and order. It means that we have differing roles. We have differing roles even now. You're listening, I'm talking. You're taking notes, I'm teaching. Doesn't mean I have more value than you. Just means it's a different role. Doesn't mean that I have a better place than you, just means we have a different role. That applies to marriage, applies to ministry, applies to employment relationships, parent-child relationships. This authority submission framework is central to what the triune Godhead is like. And finally, the triune nature of God means that our worship and adoration is informed and to all three members of the Trinity. So our worship is by the Spirit, it's through Jesus for the glory of the Father. When we come together, all three members of the triune Godhead receive our worship and praise. And each one of them, in unique ways, are deserving of our affections and our adoration. When we assemble, we assemble in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is the triune God that is accomplishing his work to sanctify us. And so when we gather together on the Lord's Day, we gather not just to learn, not just to sing, not just to fellowship. Oh, church, we gather to meet with the triune God and to declare the love that we have for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So this is 
foundational to what God is and who he is. You may be here today and you're not yet a Christian. And what I'm describing to you seems rather intriguing and yet somewhat distant. The reason is, is that the Bible tells us that our sin separates us from this holy God. Next week we'll learn more about the holiness of God. If you're here today and someone brought you, you ought to ask them, how do I, how do I deal with God's holiness and what I'm like? And your friend would love to tell you about the work of Jesus and that bridge that has changed our lives. So let me finally just draw some applications What does it mean to think about God? How is it that the nature of the triune Godhead informs how we live and how we think? First, you must never approach the study of God from a standpoint of mere information. Knowledge about God is meant to lead you to worship. If it doesn't lead you to worship, it will terminate in cold-hearted hypocrisy. So therefore, we have to take the understanding of who God is and take our theology and push it towards doxology, or we have not really understood what God is like. We ought to be warned that if worship doesn't accompany our understanding of what God is like, then pride can easily set in. Don't, don't, don't be somebody who studies God just to know more about him. You must study him to know about him so that you can love him. What's more, the study of God should lead to a deeper level of humility. If I teach you correctly and if you listen correctly, if those two things work, then it means that we would understand the glory of who God is and we'd also understand how far we are from him. And it would seem deeply wrong to leave even this moment and go out into the atrium and talk about how awesome we are. Out in the hallway talking about how cool I am and how great things are going and you've just talked about the beauty what God is like. What's more, if we understand the triune nature of God, this should lead to specific spiritual growth steps in our lives. For instance, if God's placed you in a position of authority, then you ought to use that authority in a manner that God the Father uses his authority. And oh, how we need men and women who understand positions of authority. Men in particular who use their God-given place in their homes in order to cherish and raise godly children and to protect and guard and love their wives as Christ has loved the church. For us to see that positions of authority and submissiveness, whether it comes in business or in marriage or in other relationships, is not a mark that somehow someone is less valuable, but rather it is the way in which God has designed the created order to function. And we give each other the gift of our own submission. But it also means that the triune Godhead and their interactions with one another ought to be the kind of way that we interact with one another. The Apostle Paul says, put away enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Can you imagine, just imagine for me, an argument between the Father and the Son and the Spirit? 
Imagine a tone that the father uses with the son that's just sharp. Or the son who storms out and says, I don't want to do what you want me to do. Think of the last nasty argument you had with someone you love and how far removed it is from the very character and the essence of God. And let that distance remind you that if we understand what God is like, that our words and our actions and our tones ought to reflect the way in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit interact with one another. The final thing is that the Bible tells us that the followers of Jesus, get this, we are partakers of the divine nature. That means that as you grow spiritually, God is creating within you the very nature of himself. So that as you grow in more and more likeness in the image of Jesus, you reflect the character of God himself. And this will not be completed until we see him face to face. And yet part of the beauty of Christianity is that we get little foretastes of this happening now. J.I. Packer says this, what supremely matters though, or therefore, is not in the final analysis the fact that I know God. But the larger fact which underlies it is the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me. And that is unbelievable. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you that by your mercy and through your spirit, because of the Son, we can have hearts that are ready to receive your word today, ready now to respond. So will we repent of attitudes and actions that don't fit with the nature of the triune Godhead and we ask you to make us a people, a people who are holy, people who are righteous, people who are like Christ. So push us, we pray, towards greater and greater levels of God-likeness. Make us, we pray, like you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.